Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland from Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly from KH Daly Knives. And this is The Knife Perspective, episode number 032, A Big Time with Big Chris. You know, Kyle, I say screw it. Let's do this thing live. All righty. How are you doing, Dan? You know, it is, uh, it's been a challenging couple of weeks, but it's been a fun couple of weeks. Uh, the weather is finally starting to cool down down here. The shop was below 130 degrees today, so I'm I'm in a pretty good mood. It's an exciting time at Dogwood Custom Knives right now. Yeah, you want to guess how hot the shop was at Cage Daily Knives today? Um, y'all are probably already cold. Like you're probably all the way down in the 70s by now. It was 61. Oh, <laughs> I think the high. I think the high today was like sixty three. Were Were you wearing a big fluffy coat and gloves? No, not yet. All right, because that feels like, that seems like big fluffy coat weather to me. No, I haven't broken out the jacket yet this year. So it got it's it's been down in the fifties quite a few days too. The the next few days are supposed to be like high of fifty five. That's not bad. Well, I guess now's as good a time to uh, announce it. But uh, looks like uh, me and my wife are going to be buying a new house and uh, we're going to be moving. So what that means for all of uh, all of the listeners to the podcast is uh, it's going to be a little while before we put out our next podcast. <laughs> I love the way you skipped right past talking to, to me about doing the technical side of this while you're moving. <laughs> I, I thought there was going to be an awkward conversation where I had to make up thinly veiled excuses to my technical incompetence. Well, you're more than welcome to edit a podcast or two if you want, but uh, I, don't, I don't really see that happening. Um, I am willing to give it a try, but I think we both know it's going to take you longer to teach me to do it than for you to have just already done it. Nice. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, going to have a three-car garage for the, the shop and then uh, an area of the basement that'll be dedicated with a door so I can close it off and keep the keep the kids and everybody out of there so i think it's going to be a super positive it's got a pool so we're lo- we're looking forward to that it's a little late in the season for the pool to be extremely useful but yeah it's uh twice the square footage as our house now and has uh like eight times more land so we've got a little over an acre so we're pretty oh. excited about having some some gardens and some fruit trees and it's got a big fire pit that we are we're looking at expanding and boys are going to love that yard yeah, it's going to be great with the the two dogs we have, too. They're going to have a fun time running around with that. So the next podcast will probably be close to December. We're going to the closing date sometime the end of October and probably be spending most of November uh, moving and getting the house we're in ready to sell. So, oh, come on, man. We flip one more in before then. Ah, you're denying our listeners they're they're an alienable right they're right handed down from god to listen to our greatness <laughs> yeah all right and between our listeners and that 
I, I, matter of fact, I, I believe I, I don't think I'm overstating when I say, do you want to try to stand before our list between our listeners and God? Because that's really what you're doing right now. Well, I get to answer all the DMs and emails anyway, so might as well. Uh, so we got our sponsors, uh, Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives, and our dealers, Old Town Cutlery. You can find Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives at Old Town, and you can find Dogwood Custom Knives at the Knife Center and the Knife House and Cook Station. So check those other places out for all of our knives, and they they do a lot to help us, and like to try to do a lot to help them. By the time this airs, the Knife House should have knives back in uh, back in stock. I'm finishing that order now. Very cool. And then Knife Center, uh, they've been great. They've always got stuff in stock. And Cook Station is running kind of low. I need to get another order to them. Sorry, guys. I, I'm going to get to it, I promise. <laughs> nice. Knife, the Knife Maker's first lie. <laughs> and then, uh, along with Old Town Cutlery, if you are in the North Georgia area or anywhere near Old Town Cutlery, October 10th, they're going to be having their Knife-toberfest. So hopefully we can get this episode out before that, but it might be cutting it pretty close. So um, you did that. hopefully uh, if you, uh, hopefully it was a great, great Knife-toberfest, or if it hasn't happened yet, hopefully uh, you get over there and uh, know about it. So I know we mentioned it in the last, uh, in the last podcast. So make sure you uh, check them out. And uh, I want to thank everybody. I've been getting some great responses back on my, my call to the South Carolina makers. If by chance this is the first you're hearing about it, or if you haven't you haven't sent me a message yet, please do. Uh, we're looking at either the 7th or the 14th of November. Um, I'm going to open up the shop. We've got a couple of, of very well-known makers that have agreed to do some demonstrations. We're going to have four or five demonstrations. It's going to be a chance to meet local makers. And the idea really is to mirror what the, the Georgia Custom Knife Makers Guild has done, which was a huge source for me when I was coming up. And it's going to be a teaching guild format. So there's not going to be rankings. You're either going to be judged a voting member or not. But this is really going to be about sharing knowledge. And not just the making knowledge, but how to set up your shop, how to run the business, where to find materials. Much like this podcast is about every aspect of knife making. The goal for this is hopefully it'll be the first meeting of many uh, for South Carolina and anybody willing to drive to South Carolina makers to gather to exchange information about every aspect of the craft. Again, my email is dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com. Uh, please, if you're interested, let me know and I'll get the information out to you. Yeah. Make sure you check that out. I might have to, uh, since my new garage is going to be a completely blank canvas, I might have to uh, run some ideas past you on stuff I've thought about for my new shop. And any thought about that? I've laid out five shops now. So at the very least, I can tell you a couple of things not to do. <laughs> gotcha. And then uh, the other shout out that I wanted to do is John Perry. Uh, Johnny Ducati Rocks is his Instagram handle. I got a uh, vice that is uh, going to be very helpful in doing taper tangs. So you can put a little shim in there and it holds it uh, perpendicular. So uh, huh. you can drill the uh, holds it underneath with like a set screw. Uh, check out my uh, Cage Daily Knives Instagram. I've got a picture of it up there. 
yeah, it looks like it's going to be really good. I know a lot of folder makers uh, use them too, uh, just to hold everything since it's so small and thin. Uh, drill the little holes, and then I think it's going to be pretty cool. I'm excited to give that a try. I know our our guest does some taper tangs, and uh, but much much thicker stock. So uh, if you have if you haven't heard of uh, John Perry, the Johnny Ducati Rocks Instagram, uh, definitely check him out. I got a a handle brooch uh, from him also that is just about one of the most beautiful tools I've ever seen. And his stuff is really reasonable. Standing up. Standing out. Yeah. Want to introduce our, our guest for the, for the evening? Yeah. I've actually been talking, looking forward to talking to him for a while. I have not had the fortune of the fortune. Yes. Of a face-to-face introduction, but I've seen a lot of his work. I've used some of his work. And it really is a. It's going to be a pleasure to uh, to not only speak to Chris but to delve deep inside his mind. How you doing tonight, Big Chris? Doing pretty good. I'm pretty excited about it. Cool. So the first question we always ask everybody: Where did you grow up, Chris? I grew up in uh, farming country, uh, a little town called Newcastle, Kentucky. I grew up working in tobacco fields. Uh, you know. So you grew um, up. You grew up in a easy life. With what's that? I said, you grew up with a soft, easy life, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I had it pretty easy. Uh, I was always the wagon man, you know, which if anybody knows anything about housing tobacco, you get to handle every single stick that goes up in the barn. Ooh. So all you smokers out there, you've probably smoked some tobacco that I housed and stripped and cut and planted. And you were black and tarry and up in the oh, rafters. Yeah and trying not to fall as people handed up 10-foot sticks to you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, which, I mean, you know, I think uh, growing up on the farm, or not growing up on the farm, but growing up working on farms, really, it it kind of set me up for a work ethic of, you know, not afraid to get my hands dirty, not afraid to get in there and do it. And hey, uh, There's not a lot of work in the world that will prepare you to embrace the suck more than that. Yeah, yeah, farming, you know, farming is rough at times. Uh, thankfully, I never had to do some of the nasty stuff like clean a dairy barn, even though there's a few of them around. That uh, you might get a little bit nastier than uh, working some tobacco in a dairy barn. Yeah, I, from what I understand, chicken house is really just the the bottom. That <laughs> you want to do anything, anything in the world other than clean out a chicken house. Yeah, I, I could tell a really funny story about some chickens and their fecal material, but that's an in-person story. We don't need to go into that. It's got hand motions and diagrams, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine our, our neighbors next door to our house now have, I think they have like 12 chickens. And uh, yeah, sometimes it's pretty bad over there. <laughs> yeah. And we're in the middle of the city, so. <laughs> yeah. But so I assume you're you're aware of the uh, the Dan Kyle scale on how you met your significant other. But for those that this is their new episode, uh, it's a standard question and we have a standard scale on one end of the scale. You have Dan who picked up his wife at her grandmother's wake. And on the other end of the scale, you have Kyle who met his wife online. So we got to ask where on the scale are you going to fall and how did you meet your wife? Oh, man. Uh, well, we. We met at a bar over a pool table. Both of us probably a little 
little past the legal limit. But uh, one of us was more into the other, obviously, and uh, it was her that was not into me to start with. Yeah, yeah you didn't need to tell us that, man. <laughs> That's fine. But, uh, you, you wore, you know, you wore her down, huh? <laughs> I was persistent. I wore her down. We worked together. Or not really together. We worked at UPS together. So I worked on one end of the facility. She worked on another. But I did the irregulars. It was any package over 70 pounds or over five feet long. So I'm driving a truck all the time, delivering stuff to different places. So I always, for the next like week after we met, I kept going to her belt way more than I should have. I kept talking to her and, you know, like you said, I wore her down. So we went out on a few dates and, you know, once her, uh, once she was able to convince her family that I wasn't an axe murderer <laughs> since I came all the way, I drove an hour to see her. Uh, it worked out pretty good. Just because you live in the country doesn't mean you're an axe murderer. Yeah. I mean, the the chances are greatly increased, but it is not a certainty. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how long have you guys been together now then? We have been together 18 years. Right? Yeah. We've been married 16 and Kyle, you don't put a man on the spot like that when we're recording it. I mean, fortunately he had his head together. He remembered because it was a magical moment that he'll never forget, but there are lesser men in the world that you could have just caused a horrible, horrible incident about. No, that's, that's why I edited it to make it sound good. Oh, okay. To be honest, I think with that, I'm actually a little bit better remembering than she is. Like, she can remember the details down to what we wore on our first date, but I could at least remember our wedding date. Well, for her, for you, it was a move up. For her, it was maybe yes. maybe a move down. Like, it was, it was not quite memorable a moment. Yeah, it was a little, a little questionable. So, you know, <laughs> funny thing, at the time we met, I had two different trucks, and they were Toyota trucks. I, I have a passion for Toyota trucks. And is every good yeah, first time I took her back home to meet my parents, she asked me, Is it a requirement to live out here that you have a truck? Because I mean, it's a farming community, so everybody has a truck. And she thought that was really odd that everybody had a truck. Uh, I, I find it odd that not everybody would have a truck. See, that's that's the boat I'm in. Plus, my truck, even though it is 20 years old. Hey, mine's, uh, my forerunner is an 87. Right on. I, uh, I'm all about the old Toyotas. I had a, I had an 86 lifted, cammed, header. Uh, it saw many a mud holes, many a mud runs. There probably wasn't a weekend it didn't get dirty. So mine's, mine's still got matching numbers. So I'm going to pull the engine and transmission and mothball them. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm putting a uh, a 3.4 liter V6 in it. Okay. Because um, it's, I love everything about it except when I get both kids and some camping gear in the back. Uh-huh. Trying to get the traffic is, man, you got to plan weeks ahead. Uh-huh. So I, I, I got to put a little more ass in it and then it will truly be the perfect truck. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those little 22R engines weren't the most heavy. It's absolutely bulletproof. It's just uh, you get more than one passenger in there with you, and it, it, it starts to wear a little bit. Yeah. 
Mine had 410,000 miles on it when I finally blew the head gasket. So it was it was a good truck. You know, growing up as a, you know, I had old Chevy trucks when I was growing up, so I got spoiled by a, a high-load cam and a 350. Now, when I moved down to the Toyota, I love that it's indestructible, but yeah, I, my name isn't Big Dan, but I am not a small man. Yeah, I, I sometimes wonder how, which I wasn't quite as big then as I am now, but I still was, I've never been a small guy. So I'm like, I wonder if I could still get in that truck if I had it. Um, the answer is you could get in, but you may not be able to get out. <laughs> or move around once in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't, don't roll it over. <laughs> the good news is everything you want will be within arm's reach. Uh, that, that's right. So, and when I when I was in the army, I, uh, I I was an idiot and sold this really great '86 Buick Regal two door I had, and then got a Triumph Spitfire. And okay. I used to get, on leave, I would drive from Fort Polk, Louisiana, to my parents' house in North Georgia, and then I would leave North Georgia with twelve hours to make it back, and would just drive straight through in that Spitfire, and I'd be fine. When we started doing okay, Beth is like, "All right, you know, you want to get a play thing." So I decided I wanted to get another Spitfire because I had this nostalgia because when I'd gotten out of the service, I didn't have a, a bay to work on it. And the things are constant maintenance. So I'd had to sell it. And a buddy of mine was a mechanic and he helped me rebuild the engine. And it was an about an hour's drive back from his shop. And I got to the house and I kind of fell out of the vehicle and my kidneys were killing me and I couldn't straighten my, my clutch leg and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I do not know how I ever not only sat in, sat in that vehicle, but would drive it for eight or 12 hours nonstop. Uh-huh. I, uh, the younger us are obviously stupid. More and more flexible. Well, that too. And we all know flexibility is stupid. So it's kind of the same thing. <laughs> nice. Uh-huh. So, Chris, how are you able to, to balance your, your family life and work and uh, all your other commitments that you have going on? You know, it's, it's a struggle right now with COVID and uh, NTI learning and all that. But uh, I'm, I'm really big on family first. I quit my job as a machinist 10 years ago now to be a stay-at-home dad. Woo-hoo! First off, because the price of child care was just outrageous. And, you know, I was working a 40, 50-hour week and having maybe $100 after paying for daycare. And, you know, I just, I told my wife, I was like, you know, I don't want to live like this. I would rather stay home, not spend the money, not go to work and, you know, save the money on childcare. So I'm always big, big on family. And as the kids got older, I started being able to come out and work a little bit while they were inside playing or watching TV. And uh, this was going to be the year I was really going to try and make that step more to being a full-time maker. And then, lo and behold, here comes March, COVID, school gets canceled, everybody's home. And when when the wife and kids are at home, I don't want to go out and work because I want to spend time with them. Yeah, I hear you there. That my youngest has actually started kindergarten. Robin's upstairs teaching. She's getting the other three kids through their stuff. So my my sole job for the morning is to get Elliot through all his stuff, or as much as I can, 
And then when she gets a break, I get to come out and do a little bit of work here and there. But it's still, it's still been rough. You know, two or three hours a day is about all I'm getting on average. Uh, I was really hoping to push eight or 10 hours a day, you know, at least, at least seven for the whole school day that they're gone. But, uh, you know, maybe I can try again next spring. <laughs> Talking about the, the stay at home gig, uh, the way I was able to open my, to start opening, building up my shop was I'd been doing stay at home with my boys. And there's a lot that goes on with that behind the scenes. And Beth, my wife finally sat me down and said, all right, this is how much childcare for two kids would cost. So this is your budget to open up a shop because as long as you're at this number or less, you're still saving us money. And those monthly payments is, is how I was able to open up a shop. Yeah. Uh, starting a shop, man, it's, that's a whole, that's a whole topic on itself. Uh, I don't know how big you all are on different groups in Facebook. Uh, I don't post a lot, but I read a lot. And, uh, there's a big thing been going around in one of the face, one of the forging bladesmith groups between building equipment and buying equipment. Well, I used to be, coming from a machinist background, I was into building. You know, if I could build it, I'd build it. And Robin was always, don't build it, just buy it. You buy it, you spend a little money, but it's done. So I finally came over to her side. You know, the other thing a lot of guys are saying is, I can't save money. And I'm like, you're a grown man. You're going to tell me you can't save money. When I quit my job, we gave up cable. We got rid of cell phones. Uh, we got rid of a brand new car that we had and bought a 20-year-old Suburban. I mean, you know, you make sacrifices to make what works. And, I mean, who knows? This guy that can't save money, maybe he's got a two-pack-a-day habit. Or maybe he's got a... 24 can a day habit, you know, either one of those, you know, that's going to save you 20 bucks. Yeah. I'm willing to listen to, I'm struggling to save money because I don't have a lot left over. I, I, I struggle to hear, I can't save money to your point. What it comes down to is there's something you're not willing to sacrifice. Right. And that's fine, but be honest with yourself and say, these other things are more important than whatever it is I'm supposedly saving for. Yeah, I mean, a, a guy I used to work with decided to quit smoking, and it blew his mind that after a month of not smoking, he had five hundred extra dollars in the bank. So he went out and bought a truck. I mean, not smoking, he was able to buy a truck, yeah. and I mean, that's, that's great for him. But that's a that's a lot of money when you think about like, especially like two or five bucks a day for Starbucks or different stuff like that. It all adds yeah. up really quick. Yeah. And the, the make it versus buy it equation I struggled with because I grew up, you know, things were pretty tight. You either, you either made it or you probably didn't have it. Yep. And I was, I was stuck in the mindset of if you can make it, you can make it until I realized that I just blew three days productivity to build something that's okay, but it's got a few issues to it because I'm not a machinist. Yeah. When I could have, in what I lost in may, in working for those three days, would have justified buying something right the first time. And it's it's always the grinder, you know. Build a grinder, build a grinder, buy a cheap grinder. Yeah. I I've had eight different grinders. 
most of them didn't last several months. You know, my first grinder didn't even have bearings in it. And I didn't know at the time. Yeah. It was just bushings. And I mean, I ran that thing until it wouldn't track because the bushings wore out. And then, <laughs> until it would steal and rattle. Yeah. And, and, you know, my first decent grinder was a grizzly. And I still have that grizzly. And every knife I make still goes on that grizzly. But, uh, you, you know. The better the tools, the better the product. Good tools yeah. will not make a good maker, but bad tools will make a good maker a lesser one. Well, to add on to that, uh, went to the Knife Makers Guild show, which used to be here in Louisville. And I was wanting a grinder, but not really in the market for one. And we just happened to stop at the Bader setup there. And I got to talking with the guy and ended up, I bought a Bader. And, you know, I thought I was moving up. I thought that was the greatest machine ever. I used it for several years and uh travis works came out with the tw90 i'm like man that's a nice machine talk to travis at blade show i'm like man that's a really nice machine so telling robin all about it i "I gotta have one of these so i started saving took me a few years but i saved up you know thirty eight hundred dollars ain't a lot in chunk change but i can do in an hour on that TW90, it would take me a full day to do on that Bader. And I mean, that in itself is night and day difference. You know, and that's the, my step isn't from a Bader. I went, I went from a Kalamazoo to a, uh, a KNG. And the KNG was the single greatest machine I'd ever stood for, in front of. Yeah. But it's taken me about 10 years, but I have, I've just about outgrown the KNG. And that's, the T90 is the, the I'm leaning that way. I'm, uh, I'm in the market because it's, it's ready for me to take, I'm ready to take the next step. You know, I'll, I'll be blunt, honest with you. So you've got a KMG and you've got inch and a half tooling arms all over your shop, I'm going to assume. Yep. So I came from a Vader, which is inch and a quarter, and the TW90 is inch and a quarter. Uh, if I had, if I had a KMG and inch and a half tooling arms, I would go North Ridge. All right. Straight up, no second thoughts. Dude is a hell of a machinist. He makes machine gun parts. <laughs> and his machines are just gorgeous. Like I said, if I didn't have inch and a quarter tooling arms already from that Vader, I would be in a North Ridge. I appreciate it. I'll uh I'll look into him. I, I would definitely look into it. Yeah. Uh you know. Obviously, I don't have one. I would love to have one. But. Well, and that, that that lets me do what I really want to do. I've actually got, arguably, I've got three KNGs right now. Um, and that lets me keep my first one, which I really wanted to do, sell the other two. And then uh, if I get something with inch and a half tooling arms, then it makes, then I can justify holding on to my original grinder. Yep. And, you know, that way, all the stuff that you've made or built or, I mean, me, for example, I've got five different tooling arms that I've made to fit different attachments for all inch and a quarter. So if I went to a different machine, I've got to make all new tooling arms for my attachments. Yeah. Yeah. I had always wondered why he went with inch and a quarter. I, I guess I never knew the Bader one was uh, inch and a quarter. Yeah. The TW90 is based off the Bader wheel spacing and stuff, you know, because... 
I think Travis was a better guy before he started making his own grinders. Okay. So it, it all goes into what you're familiar with. Yeah, I really want to get a grinder that tilts 90 degrees so it can use my surface grinder attachment thing that I bought uh, quite a bit easier. It, it really wears you out. I mainly use it for kind of thinning out handle material and stuff, yeah. getting it yeah. the right thickness, but moving that up and down hundreds of times, it gets it's pretty heavy. You know, I, I thought I really was excited for that tilt feature and I probably use it never. I, I was going to say, I the only, no, I'll take it back. The only time I use the tilt is when I'm uh, profiling my big competition choppers. Because, you know, it's two and a half pound bar of steel to start with. And that's just a lot of steel to work up and down. So it's nice to be able to lay it on the rest and watch your line horizontally. And I was going to say, I had one that tilted and I sold it because I never used it. Yeah, I I don't use that tilt near as much as I thought I would. And maybe that's just me. I'm totally missing out on the usefulness of it. and People can hate me for it. But, I mean, I I spent six years on a baiter that didn't tilt, so I got pretty accustomed to not tilting. I have found that one tends to specialize their work to the tools they have. And then they, yeah. they don't fit. Once they've got that box that works for them, there's no reason for them to reach out. Uh, it's one of the reasons I like going to other people's shops uh, because I can't think of a time that I didn't go to somebody else's shop that I didn't pick up a tip that, Hey, that's, that's a perspective I never would have thought of. Well, it's, it's like uh, just talking to another maker. Uh, y'all know Donovan Phillips. Uh, he's in Blade Sports with me, but yeah, Donovan he, he won the papers. he won the last year's uh, cutting competition, right? Yes, uh, he won worlds. Yeah, last year at Blade Show. But Donovan tapers tangs, and I mean he tapers tangs like nobody I've ever seen taper a tang. If the end of his tang is thicker than a piece of paper, he's not doing something right. Wow, he's off that. I mean, they are super thin. And I've been tapering tanks for a while, and he tapers tanks, and we were talking back and forth about tapering tanks. And he told me how he tapers tanks. I thought, huh, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to have to try that. I came back and did his method of tapering tanks, and I can taper a tank in about a third of the time now. Wow. What I used to do. So, and all it was, all it was, was I used to taper with the blade up. And he said, try it with the blade down. And I went to the blade down, and it opened a whole new world for me. See, I, uh, I'm i a cheating son of a gun, and I just drill holes. <laughs> yeah. I, it, you know, it, I used to be right there with you, and uh, it was blade show, like my second blade show. So probably six or seven years ago. It was the year that Jason Knight, made that incredible mosaic Damascus kukri with the, it was a keyhole handle. I don't know if y'all remember that or not, but I mean, it was, it was an exquisite kukri. I was looking at it and it was at uh, Joe Parody's booth. When Joe Parody was the guy selling the disc, the matte disc and folders. And he asked me to bring a knife back over to him. So I brought a knife over to him. He pointed out some things that I could work on and, things way to improve and one of the things was tapering a tank and uh he pointed out a lot of knives that he had in the case the custom knives and 
one of the things he said to me was, a really high-end custom knife isn't finished unless the tang is tapered. And, you know, he was he was talking about a full tang knife. And that kind of really set with me. And it took me probably another year to really take it to heart. And now, to me, if the knife is over an eighth inch thick, I don't feel like it's finished unless the tang is tapered. Well, and that's that's one of the places where we branch is I, I refuse to make a knife thicker than an eighth of an inch. Um, that's just just my style. But I wholly agree that there is a beauty in a tapered tang and it demonstrates the skill of a maker. But the engineer in me just just rages that but I can get the same performance with a fraction of the cost. And I'm with you on that. I mean, majority of the steel I buy is a hundred thousand thinner. Uh, you know, for a big guy, I, I like, I prefer thin like knives. Hey, but uh, I mean, the, the physics is proven. Yeah, you know, some camp knives, uh, obviously the competition choppers and things. Uh, you know, they they really need that taper tang and. The taper tang on the competition choppers is it's a total game changer. Oh. Because depending on how you taper that tang, you can move your balance point almost anywhere you want. Yeah. Precisely. Whereas like a mortise tang, you don't have that accurate of a weight placement. It's, it's, it's really weird, but... No. When you're looking for an exact balance point to give you repeatable performance, you know, ounces and eighths of an inch. Well, and you it's far easier to control than trying to decide, all right, I'm going to do an eighth of an inch hole at this point, or I'm going to do a quarter of an inch hole at this point. So, I, yeah, especially on race blades, absolutely, it gives you a level of control that you don't get any other way. Yes. Now, especially if you're trying to tweak something to a specific user. Yeah. So so bringing it back around to uh our our outline here. Yeah, what was your what was your first knife? I, I honestly don't know the first knife I got. You know, it was probably my dad always said it was a case. Some sort of case, you know, a stockman or prep or something. My grandfather always had cases. He's probably got a thousand case pocket knives man if somebody's grandfather didn't have a case i don't trust them yeah yeah true but the first knife that i always think about is uh i got a rambo 2 reproduction (laughs) and i mean i got it for christmas i I had to be maybe eight nine ten years old i mean we could probably place it if we knew what year rambo 2 came out and that was that was a hollow handle, I assume, too? It was It was a hollow handle, sawtooth back, you know, Jimmy Lyle design. It had some cheap nylon cord wrapped around the handle to give it a look. But Heck the yeah. handle was full of stuff. And, I mean, I can sit here right now and vividly remember opening that box on Christmas morning. And, uh, and it, you know. And the cover on the back. That was That was the closer. The, the compass on the back, and I, I think, I think the Rainbow Two actually came with an interchangeable pommel, so that you could screw the one with the compass out and screw a different one in Ooh. that had a lanyard hole in the back. Now, where that second pommel is, I don't know to this day. 
<laughs> I'm sure that knife is still at my parents' house. So we might be about to get the same answer, but uh, and this can be one that you've made or one that you did not make. But what's your favorite knife? You know, I was I was thinking about that one earlier today, and I've got a lot of favorites, <laughs> and they're, they're basically all going to be stuff that I've made. You know, but, obviously one of my favorites is the knife I carried on Knife or Death. Uh, I love that knife. That was the best cutting competition knife I'd made to that day. And then another favorite would be my knife, Audrey, which is the competition knife I made to replace that knife. But as far as a knife that I would carry and use, I've got this little, oh, it's about a four and a half inch blade. I call it a XL Personal EDC. It's S90V. It's like 90 South thick. Something about every aspect of that knife just jives. It's, it feels so good to me in the hand. And, you know, S90V is a bomb steel. It's so awesome. And uh, it cuts, and it cuts forever. And I got the edge geometry just right on it. And, you know, that's, if I had to pick a knife, somebody said, pick a knife right now out of your knife bag, and that's what you have to carry. That's the knife I would go grab. And I feel like I could do anything under the sun with it. That's the greatest compliment you can give. You know, I'm I'm big on using. I'm not sure every knife maker is. You hate to hear about a knife sitting in a safe, not being used. Man. The, the greatest thing I get are the pictures from guys hunting and camping and just, you know, a picture of my knife stuck in an animal doing work. I mean, Every knife maker, I don't care if it's your fifth knife or your 5,000th knife, that's going to hit you in the fields. That, that's my work getting used. Man, I love when I'm at a show and some guy comes up and he's looking a little sheepish and he's like, hey, I got one of your knives, but, and you look at it and, yeah, it's dinged. You can see a nick in the butt where it's been dropped and it's scratched and it's obviously been heavily used. Mm-hmm. Man, I love nothing more than that. The, I do mm-hmm. I do a free spa service. If you send one of my knives, all you got to do is pay for shipping, and I will clean it up free of charge just to encourage people to go out there and use them. I just got one of them back the other day. It was uh, – and I remember the knife vividly. It was the very first knife I'd ever put 3V on. And uh, it was a big chopper, like 12-inch blade. 14-inch blade, something like that. And I ground it just stupid thin, way thinner than it should have been for a chopper, just to see what the 3B would hold up to. And it was probably done in my second or third year of making knives. So, I mean, it's, it's probably eight years old at this point. You know, I got it in, and I was just going to scotch dry it real quick and sharpen it up and not do anything fancy. But it had those, like, second-year grinds. And I said... I can't send this knife back out to this guy. This is a piece of history. <laughs> so I had to freshen it up. I gave it a regrind, cleaned all the old irregular scratches off. It had about four different grind lines going down it where I didn't know what I was doing. So I cleaned all that up. And, I mean, it's, it, it was it was really nice. Uh, you know, the same guy that bought it from me originally still had it. And, you know, I thought it was, it was like, this is awesome. You know, 
So I hope he enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed working on it. But uh, but it was nice. Didn't you share a picture of that recently on your? I did. I did. Social media? I shared a picture of it after. I really should have shared a picture of the before, just so people could see how horrible it was ground. Because not everybody starts off grinding decently. One of my chefs, Todd Musman, has, I mean, it's definitely one of the first 80 knives I made. It might even be one of the first 30 knives I made. Uh-huh. And he's got it, and I keep trying to buy it from him, and he will not sell it to me. I've, I've offered to trade him two of my new knives for it, and it just kills me that there is something that ugly out there with my name on it. And he just, oh, he just takes perverse pleasure. He's like, uh-uh. One day you're going to be famous and you're going to die and this will be worth money. <laughs> yep. But I, yep. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've offered him cash. I've offered him new knives. He just will not. And it kills me. I, I cringe every time he pulls it out. Yeah. Uh, you know, and in itself, that's that's got to be great that he just enjoys using it that much. Yeah. Also. It's either that or he just enjoys tormenting me. It's, it's hard to tell. Tormenting you, yeah. Yeah. He's also he's also the one that does uh, some of the prototyping for me when I first got into kitchen knives, uh-huh. and takes perverse pleasure of not returning the prototype. So he's just got this ugly ass knife of mine. Okay, very cool. So Chris, how, how did you end up getting started making knives? It was what made you decide to want to start getting into this hobby more? You know, it's it's kind of a long story in a way. I got started off in wood carving. I got really big into wood carving, I guess, right after we got married. So I started buying little wood carving knives and carving trinkets and reading about making wood carving knives and decided that uh, a lot of guys were taking old junk straight razors and grinding them down into carving knives. I thought, that sounds really interesting. So. I was buying straight razors off of eBay that had been chipped or broken and all this stuff. And I was grinding them down, making uh, carbon knives with them. And then, uh, you know, really crude, but they, they carved. One day I got a lot of razors that had a really good straight razor in it. So I decided I was going to try and start shaving with a straight razor. So I did that for a while. And then I thought, I'm going to try and make a straight razor. So I set up a bar of steel, old one in the milling machine at work one day, and I started milling bevels into it. And I got about three quarters of the way done. And oh, what if I made me a hunting knife instead of a straight razor? So I took that little one by 42 grinder I had at home and I undid all the work that I did to make that straight razor and turned it into a hunting knife. And he treated it. Was that the last time you you actually shaved was the, when you messed with that straight razor? Or <laughs> you got a pretty big beard there. Those two, those two events probably overlapped a little, but, uh, you know, I was, I was still, like I said, it was ugly. It was rough. And then about that same time, the knife makers guild show had just moved to Kentucky. So I went to that and I was, I wanted a forged knife, just a forged knife. That's that's what I got to get. So I went in there and I bought one. It was it was nice, really nice hand finished. Fifty one sixty had a little Hamon line on it. Uh, Usyk handles, nickel silver fittings. 
uh, brown, thin. I was like, yeah, this guy was, not only was he in the guild, but he was in the ABS also. So I'm like, yeah, this, this is the guy to buy from. So I bought it, and I brought it home, and I started cutting some stuff up. Uh, a friend of mine, a couple counties over, killed a deer. Asked me to come over and help him clean it. So I like, yeah, I got this brand new knife. Let's go, let's go cut this thing up. So I'm out there, it's a brand new knife. I'm cutting on this deer, and all of a sudden it just stops cutting. I'm like, what's going on? So I had another knife, finished the work. I brought the 5160 knife back home. I sharpened it, started doing some more cutting, and then just again, the edge just went flat. So I contacted the maker. I'm like, man, something's going on. I just won't hold an edge. So he says, send it back to me. I'll reheat treat it. So I sent it back to him. A couple weeks later, I get the knife back. Same thing. So I'm like, man, this sucks. So I threw it in a drawer and uh, never never looked at it again. Then uh, I thought, I'll try a different maker. So I bought another one from a different maker. And this one... Man, it would hold an edge, but it was ground like an axe. I mean, it was so thick, just incredibly thick. So I was thinking to myself, I was like, you know, you can machine. You've done a little bit of grinding. You've done some heat treatment. Why don't you just make it? Do it start and finish and make it. So that was, uh, I thought, I can do as good as these guys at least. So got me another piece of old one, started grinding a knife. And, uh, you know, completely ground it from scratch, whole new pattern, heat treated it at work. And, uh, you know, I carried it for a while. And then several years down the road, I found it, stepped in the corner of my shop, and I reground it. And I, I've kicked myself every day since that for regrounding that knife and making it look a lot better than it did back in the day. But that was kind of the start. Uh, you know, I had a knife that wouldn't hold an edge. I had a knife that was ground so thick that it wouldn't cut. And that that kind of led me into the super steels to get into the, you know, the 90Vs, the 4Vs, the M4s and that stuff. Because I, I just wanted that extreme edge holding. And then grind it super thin. So that was that's kind of what kicked all that off. Where do you get your, uh, where do you get your inspiration for your patterns? Uh Really just kind of stuff that I think I would like to use. You know, uh, I like a carry knife. I like a big carry knife. You know, I'm, I'm about a nine, nine and a half inch overall kind of guy. Uh, that's what's comfortable for me to carry and use. I don't mind a four and a half, five inch blade. I focus a lot on ergonomics. I focus a lot on cutting ability. You know, I don't do real fine hand finishes. Everything's just belt ground. You know, maybe a scotch bright finish here and there. I try and put more time into getting a good thin edge, a good comfortable handle, uh, nice contours, no square edges or anything anywhere. Uh, those are the things that are most important to me. It's got to be comfortable to use, comfortable to carry, and uh, functional. So would you say functionality defines your style? Uh, I guess you could say that. Uh, well, if you take the competition choppers, I've made a couple of different cleaver patterns. Now, cleavers for like an EDC don't seem like the most useful pattern, but 
it's they're way more handy than the. I mean, think about a, a utility knife, a razor knife that you would use. It's just a straight blade to the tip. And I mean, you cut anything you want. Those cleavers are the same way, basically. And plus, if you try to puncture something, everybody always says, but you can't stab with one. I mean, you can stab with it if you try hard enough. You just, you don't stab straight on. You have to do a little bit of a, a set cut, start with that tip. But you can put so much more pressure in a cut with that tip on a cleaver style than you ever could with the tip on a, like a hunting knife, a drop point or a spear point. Yep. Just because of the, the ergonomics of the wrist and the hand. You get so much more leverage with the, the tip being low. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to explain that to a lot of people because they just see a cleaver and think, well, it don't have a point. How can you do any work with it? Well, and the, the stabbing people, um, I've been around for 46 years and I've been in some pretty rough places and I have yet to have needed to stab anybody, but I've need to cut a lot of stuff. So I lean yeah. towards cutting stuff versus stabbing stuff. Yeah, I, yeah. I haven't had to stab anything either. Well, I've, I've made befriended several of the SWAT members for our local police department. And they've asked me to make knives for them to carry while they're working. And you know what they want? They don't want some big tactical Bowie that's going to look cool. Every one of them has wanted like, a little five or six inch utility knife, something small that they can put on their belt line or somewhere on their loadout gear. Because all they're cutting, they might have to cut a piece of string, cut a zip tie, you know. Yeah, some paracord. Guns. Yeah, paracord. They're not getting in a knife fight with somebody. All the time in the army, I used a little. Uh... Uh, Gerber, Gerber Gator far more than I ever used a bayonet. Mm-hmm. I can believe it. Um, what uh, what style or uh, I guess what technique do you use when uh, when you're knife making? Are you a, a stock removal guy? You a forge? Um, I'm predominant. I'm I'm all stock removal right now. Um, I'm transitioning, working on transitioning into some forging, uh, but I'll probably I'll never leave the stock removal. Just because of the steels I like to work with, with the uh, you know the super steels, CPM steels, they're not really forging steels. Yeah. It, it, uh, so I'll I'll stay in the stock removal, but forging has always really intrigued me, just for the the natural flow, the stretching, the moving, the you know, it's, I feel like it's a little bit more artistic. Yeah, I've I've wanted to make some of the integral. Uh, bolster chef knives and stuff too and yeah unless you want to throw away a ton of steel uh that's pretty much the only way to do that yeah chef's knives are what i'm most interested in forging i'll be honest i don't think i'll jump into forging a chef's knife but uh, steven fowler's got a great perspective he's because he does both and uh, if he's not an abs master then he's he's very shortly will be and he said uh mm-hmm. I forge knives because I like hitting stuff with hammers. He said, I do stock removal. I mean, you, for practical reasons, you can't, you can't forge particle steels, but he said, nothing gives me the joy that hitting stuff with a hammer does. Yeah. But he'll tell you that's the only reason to forge now. 
I've, I think it's Nick Rossi. I've heard say that anybody could forge a knife. The real skill comes in grinding. And I'm of two minds. Man. I mean, I'm I'm a stock removal guy, so I, I got to be careful. Um, some guys will do the whole forge it thick, grind it thin. And in that case, yes. Yeah. But I have seen some guys, um, Mark Hopper, Stephen Fowler, Rex. I just, oh, he's going to kill me when I see him at the George, at the uh, Georgia Guild meeting for forgetting his first name. Um, hopefully, Kyle will be able to edit it in. But they will actually. <laughs> Not if you don't say yeah, it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Jason, Jason Knight does a really cool, like, Forged or pretty much all the way forged, and then basically just sharpens the yeah the edge. Um, those guys, yeah, and those guys will do you know just a few passes on the grinder. They'll come off of the forge with or come off the anvil with the bevels done. Carl Recksteiner, that's his name. Carl Recksteiner. Um, those guys will come off the anvil with the with it 90% done. I mean, the grinds are bad. Yes. That's the kind of fortune that I want to do. That's, that's what I'm aiming at in the end. So I, to your original point, I agree, but I have to give a nod to, there's some guys that I have personally seen that they forge 90% of the knife. Right. I'm with you. I understand. So um, you talked about uh, particle steels. Yeah. Is there uh, are there are there favorite particle steels? Are there some simple carbon steels that you like to work with? I've, I've worked with some fifty two one hundred. I've done a lot of old worn, yeah. and I've done a little bit of ten eighty four. Fifty two one hundred is pretty awesome. Uh, I have to say, it's I've only made like some big bowies with it, but just the the edge geometry and stuff you can you can grind it. It seems a bit thinner than you can on one, and it, it holds up. It holds an edge really well. Yeah. But uh, the place on one is its heat treatability. Yeah, fifty two one hundred does take quite a bit more steps for heat treating. And uh, I don't know if it was on the podcast earlier, if we were just talking about it before it started. But you were talking about Larry and Thomas's book. He did a 52-100 heat treat. That's probably been a year or so ago. And I followed that the last time I did 52-100. And, man, that stuff is awesome. I mean, that's, that's a killer heat treat for 52 He has taken a lot of guesswork out. Like, he really has simplified a lot of stuff. Because uh, I used to – I'd find four or five different recipes and start tweaking to see what worked. Um, now that I've got his new book, I just go to, I just go to his text. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of guys will probably hate me for saying this, but I'm still not the biggest fan of the low heat treat temper protocol. I'm still a a high temper guy, uh, for the most part. So for clarification, what do you mean by high and low tempers? Uh, the, everything's trending to tempering it like, 400 degrees and under. Yeah. And most steels that don't matter, most all the PM steels have a double hardening hunt where you can get your hardness down at the three to 400 temper 
or you can get your hardness up at the thousand degree temperature. You know, those, those two humps kind of cross each other. You know, now from what I understand, a lot of that refers back to whether or not you're using liquid nitrogen. I don't have liquid nitrogen at this time. I don't do 95% of my heat treatment. 95% of my heat treat, I send to Peters. Yeah. And, you know, I tell Brad, hey, I want this steel 63 Rockwell. And I get them back and they're 63 Rockwell. And that makes me happy. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if I did a lot more of my own heat treatment, it'd, it'd probably change my, my, the mind a little bit. But I've always been a heat treat, dry ice, and then temper high. No. Uh, it just, that's the way I started. And uh, that's always worked. It always gave me the edge retention that I'll, that I expected out of stuff. And uh, so it all comes back to that retained austenite. Uh, liquid nitrogen gets rid of it. High temper gets rid of it. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's which side of that argument do you want to be on? Uh, so I guess, I guess when Peter's doing my heat treating, I'm a low temper guy. <laughs> when I'm doing my heat treating, I'm a high temper guy. So. And uh, to circle back uh, on what steels do you like uh, for your competition choppers? What are you using these days? 4V, CPM 4V all the way. 63 Rockwell is what I run them at. The edge geometry is insanely thin for a 28 ounce knife. My newest knife that I just made is hollow ground with a convex edge. And it's sitting at about 27 and a half ounces. And uh, I think at about 60 thou back from the edge, it's around 20 thousandths thick. And, uh, you know, to put that number in perspective for some guys listening that might not know, 20 thousandths is thinner than most production folders. And you're measuring that you're measuring that uh, behind your secondary bevel. Yeah, because the my actual cutting bevel is blended in to the convex, so it's this pure convex edge. Uh, I'm very how do I want to how do I want to word this? I'm very peculiar about that because I feel that having that secondary bevel that that little shoulder that's there. It's going to slow you down in the cut. Yep. Uh, so I feel like if I had that bevel there, I couldn't cut a two by four and four hits. It might be six or more. Now, granted, all wood doesn't cut the same. And sometimes you'll get a three hit board, and sometimes you'll have a ten hit two by four. But no, I, I that, that convex I'm very peculiar about. And I I tend to agree with you that shoulder on the secondary bevel can be a sticking point. Um, I see that a lot in culinary knives. Um, mm-hmm. Chefs still like the 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 flat the flat primary and flat secondary bevel, but I really got to be aware of of that edge thickness behind the secondary bevel because you get a stiff shoulder there and it'll destroy your cutting geometry. Yeah. Yes. Very much so. But, uh, but man, 4V is amazing. I used to say that I would use 3V for any knife. And I mean, 3V is still an awesome steel. But you bump up to 4V, you're really not losing that much toughness. 
but you're gaining so much edge retention. I mean, you're. Hey, why go to 10 when you could go to 11? Why go to three? Yeah. When you go to four. I mean, <laughs> four V at four V at 63. You're, you're pushing really close to the edge retention of M4 at 64 Rockwell. And I mean, that's, that's really awesome. Yeah. And at 63, 4V has more toughness than M4 at 64. Huh. So you're, you're gaining all the way around the thing. You have to bump M4 down to like 60, 61 to come in the same realm of toughness as 4V. But you're at that point with the M4 softer, you've lost a little bit of edge holding compared to 4V. I mean, you know, we're super splitting hairs here. You know, it's it's super splitting hairs, but and for clarification, my experience. For clarification, you're you're when you say toughness, you mean the material can deform and then return to its original shape. Uh, it can take a beating. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I'm talking lateral toughness and that stuff. Uh, because uh, you get a you get a nasty knot in a two by four or something, and I mean you can chip a you can chip any of these blades. Oh yeah, and you know I've I have not chipped the four V blade in a piece of wood. Every time I've chipped one of my knives, it's been from something stupid hitting a screw that I didn't pay attention was there, uh, hitting a staple. Um, I hit my saw out here in the shop one time. That's, that's a story for another time, too. Man, staples and saws scare the snot out of me. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing you do like a paper towel roll when you uh, you had it positioned a little bit too, or not very close to the, the edge of the, when your follow-through nicked it on something yeah. steel. Yeah, so that, and you know, that on, the, on our cutting tables, we intentionally leave the screws at the corners about six or eight inches away from the corners of the edge, just so if you do get to the table, you're not going to chip the tip, but sometimes it happens. And like Kyle says, sometimes you miss your mark and you get a little too far in. You know, I get really excited when I'm cutting stuff. I I love, I love swinging these competition choppers. Uh, I describe them to guys as like, the top field dragster of the knife world. I mean, they're not good at a lot of stuff, but when it comes to cutting something fast, there ain't much going to match it in that size range. Well, it's like any other race tool. It is phenomenal at the race. Um, would I want a, like a three gun race gun to take hunting or in real world situations? No. Right. I mean, it, it is super fast and phenomenal. At the task that it is designed for, it's at the the apex. It's at the pinnacle yeah. of what can be done with that task. I get guys asking about it as a camp knife, and I'm like, "Yeah, it'll do it, but why carry a two and a half pound knife around when you can do the same thing with a twelve ounce knife?" Well, and the the guys that want to carry two pound chopping knives are the guys that don't walk far from the car. Uh, yeah, you've got a point there. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be to be hurtful or rude, but having spent some time where I had to carry everything I owned everywhere I went, right. man, 
you start thinking about what's the least I can do this with. Yeah. And, and back to competition blades are designed for competition, nothing else. You can use them for other things. Hell, I could use a wrench for a hammer, but that doesn't mean I want to. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So, uh, back on the steel side, I would say probably my favorite stainless steel is I'm back on that 90V. S90V. You know, it just, it has so much bang for its buck with edge holding and stain resistance and everything that goes into it. Yeah. It's, and it's, and it's easy. I shouldn't say easy to work. It's easier than the higher grade stainless steel. So it's it's not the hardest drilling. It's it's not the worst grinding, and and you can get a pretty decent belt finish on it. Drilling I can live with. It's the grinding that starts costing money. Yeah, I I use a lot of thirty six grit belts, and I've I've learned pretty good to do about eighty percent of my grinding with those thirty six grit belts, especially on the high hardness and high wear steels, and that helps. You put your bevels on with 36 grit? Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll shape with 36. Um, when I do my bevels, I'll go down to, to 60 and then walk them through you know, 60, 80, 120, 220. Um, but I, I, yeah, if I'm, I'll hand finish my bevel. If, if I'm grinding a blade, say I want to do an inch and a quarter tall grind, I'll go inch and an eighth high with that 36 grit belt. And then sixty one twenty two twenty. And um, you haven't had trouble with uh, with random scratches from the thirty six getting a deep scratch here and there. No, not really. Uh, you know, I'm 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 pretty uh, I'm pretty cautious uh, when I'm creeping up on that on that line. I said I'm not second guessing you. I'm learning here. No, no, I, I, that's fine. Um, yeah, I, I do a similar thing with a thirty six. So I do most of my bevel grinding with 36 and I'll go like, like three quarters of the height that I want it to be with the 36. And I just never, uh, when I start getting high, I never put a brand new 36 on. I was getting ready to say, that's one of the keys. If you're, if you're getting really high and that belt stops cutting, don't put a fresh one on and finish cutting or you will blast those scratches up. So, yeah. If you start the bevels, try and finish the bevels with that same belt or go ahead and step down a grip because you will get those straight scratches if you put a fresh belt on yeah. on the grind. And I've, I'm probably adding a day to production time, and I've had to talk with myself about it. But I try, I like – How did that How did that go? <laughs> Turns out I'm mm. – Who <laughs> Uh, Man, throwing a belt away is the hardest. That's it's like a ten dollar bill laying in the floor. Yeah, you know, I think there's actually a five sitting there, and I can get at least four more dollars worth out of it. Oh. Well, and I finished. Uh, I finished mine with. I'll hand finish mine with. So the scratches are horizontal rather than vertical. Right. Um, so I get. I get really. I get a little. Little nervous about having to work out thirty six inch or thirty six grit scratches. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would imagine. I'm going to try walking it up, you know, three quarters of the way there, and then using an, an older belt and work it through, work it through the grits. Are you all freehand grinders? Or are you jig grinders? I'm freehand. 
I, I, I use oh, a, I use a work rest with a push stick. I don't use a jig. So okay. it's, I, some people don't call that freehand grinding. I, what that's usually all I do that for my, my first ones. And then, uh, I use a disc grinder, a bunch on my kitchen knives and that's all freehand. I'm of the opinion that if you are controlling the blade on all three axes, then you're hand grinding. Yeah, some people think the the work rest is cheating. Just I find that I I have a lot more control, uh, not having to worry about the blade going up and down. I I've tried the work rest just seems to get in the way with me. Uh, I don't know. You would think the belly would get in the way more than the work rest, but it just doesn't seem. <laughs> I'm used to working around this belly. That, <laughs> that work rest is, you know, the the guy I apprenticed with, Andy, is kind of a string bean build. I mean, he's a really thin guy. Yeah. And when he was teaching me to, uh, when he was teaching me to to hand grind, yeah, you know, he showed me lock your elbows in right against your rib cage, and he's like, just put the knife right there at the apex of that belly, and you're lucky because that's going to hold you off from the work surface, so you can you can see what you're doing, and you're not laying your chest up on the grinder. And sure enough, I just hold it right there at the apex of my belly and just lean into it. Yeah, when it, it gets kind of nerve wracking when you're running your grinder at 100 percent, a fresh 36 grip belt, and trying to really hog on one of those choppers. Because uh, you just know, if anything, let's go. You're going to take a good strip out of your chest. Yeah. But uh, I mean, that's the way to get work done. You know, and I'm a little different. I actually, if I'm going to get bit, I'd rather get bit by a 36 grit than, say, a 120. I mean, it'll cut me, and I'll feel it. I'll pull, I'll pull away. You know, those finer grits, man, half my finger's gone before I realize what happened. Yeah, that, that, that's that's a good point, too. Uh, now, I've had, a, I've had a 36 grit belt break and smack me on top of the head, and I really would have take, rather have taken that with a... a, a finer grit belt yeah you can get some pretty good road rash from that that knock any sense into you lord no <laughs> what have we never met before <laughs> the only thing that came out of that was i was glad that i wore a full fl- a full face respirator so yeah yeah so a little bit ago we we talked about some of your uh your cutting competition stuff and things like that what uh how'd you guys get into the blade sports how did that whole thing start out well, I, I had known about blade sports for a long time, and I followed it. I was a I was a huge fan of dance. You know, talked to him at blade shows when he started winning his world competitions and stuff. You know, I was a follower. I knew what was going on. And at the time, the only school that you could go to was in Waxahachie, Texas, or somewhere way out in Washington State. And both of them just seemed unattainable. So I just kept writing it off as like, you know, it'll never happen. And then me and Donovan, we started talking back and forth and we've been messaging for a while. And then it just so happened he was coming to Louisville for work one day, one weekend. And he's like, hey, I'm going to be in town. I'll come by and talk. So we're out here. We're talking knives and going on. And he's like, what about late sports? So I was like, I just, I don't have time. I can't can't go to Texas. I can't go to Washington. He's like, dude, we've got a new school opening up down in Tennessee. It's like four hours from you. So he twisted my arm, not very much. 
and uh, got me got me interested enough to attend the school. And uh, first thing he told me, he said, "I know you're a knife maker. Do not make a knife just to go to this school." Well, he left, and I said, "I'm a knife maker. I'm going to make a knife to go to this school, and I'm going to make the best knife I know how." Needless to say, I went to this school. I made this first competition chopper. And it's probably hands down the worst competition chopper I've ever made. <laughs> and uh, so I cut with it. I mean, it cut some stuff okay. But you, I learned so much from making that first knife about blade geometry, handle ergonomics, weight distribution, uh, all that stuff. And <clears throat> I came back home and I made a second one. And I made some changes to it. And I cut with it a couple of weeks later, and I was like, "Man, this is better, but it's still pretty crappy." So I I regrounded a little bit, and I cut with it a third time, and it's like, "You know, it did pretty good, but I can still do better." And that's that's the pit that you get into with blade sports as a knife maker. You know, yeah, this one did pretty good, but I think I can do better. But Donovan, he got me into blade sports, and uh, it's so much fun just cutting stuff. How'd you link up with Donovan? On did you you guys meet at Blade Show or we we met at Blade Show? He actually he turned me on to uh, Phoenix Abrasives to start buying belts and stuff from them, and you know we hit it off with the knife stuff. We started talking about knives and. Uh, you know, obviously that's what two knife makers are going to talk about, but you know, it's it's kind of just two country boys from two different states just hit it off really good, and you know, we'd message back and forth, random things throughout the weeks. Nice. You talked about the the rabbit hole of on the maker side of it of of chasing perfection, and as a maker, you've got full control over the knife you're working with, but as a trainer. How is it working with, because when you're training somebody, you don't have 100% control over that person. You've only got a limited amount of influence. So so how is it How is it training people? The basis of blade sports is the use of a knife as a tool. So first off, we teach through a safety meeting and through a bunch of talking for like the first hour and a half of the school that a knife is a tool. This is how you use it. You use it safely. You talk about the lanyard. You talk about uh, once you have that knife unsheathed in your hand and your cutting hand, your offhand is dead. I mean, you might as well cut your arm off and throw it away because you can't do anything with it. And that's, you know, there's enough safety rules put in place to really make it safe for anybody. Unless you just do something stupid. So why does everybody look at me when you say that? <laughs> it, it happens. You know, it's it's little things like when you cut something and your knife gets wet, you wipe it off on your pants. You wipe it off on your shirt sleeve. You wipe it off. In blade sports, when that knife is wet and you're done cutting, you shove it in a sheet. As, as much as that hurts you, and as much as these steels that we use for them will rust in a minute, that's what you have to do because that's that's part of the rules. I said I just got a little nauseous hearing you say that. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's really blew up a little bit in my mouth when you said just cram it back in the sheath. Yeah, you just shove it back in your sheath. So when you get to your hotel room, you you take it out, you dry it off, you oil it up real good, and you don't put it back in its sheath till the sheath dries. I mean, that's that's just the way we do it, and it's it's everything's about safety and all those safety protocols, which several have been added over the years, and most of them are because. Somebody made a mistake, but I mean, you're literally carrying around a two-pound razor blade. I can I can almost say without hesitation that my competition choppers are hands down the sharpest knives in this house. And I mean, that's that's coming from somebody who's fanatical about sharpness and thin edge geometry. My competition knives are on a different level. So along with sharpening, I know one of the questions we got from one of the listeners was they wanted to know uh, what is your preferred method of sharpening uh, your competition sharpers and your regular knives, too? Uh, Donovan will also tell you I'm the world's worst person to talk about sharpening because I have a horrendous method for sharpening. I hold the stone in one hand and I hold the knife in the other and I work on opposite of each other. Uh. And it's, it's like chaos in motion. And he's told me many a times, there's nothing he hates worse than watching me sharpen a knife. But as long as you're using tears from a virgin as the lubricant, you'll be fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's what works for me. I've tried setting the stone on a table and working it like a bench stone. And it's, it's like I've got two left thumbs or I'm working with my feet. It just, it just won't work. But, uh, you know, I don't do anything crazy. I have a set of DMT stones. I do the black, which I think is 200, 120, something like that. I do the black stone, develop a burr on both sides. I go to the red stone, which is like 600 grit, fine. I'll refresh in that burr, clean up the scratch pattern. And the whole time, I'm varying my angles because I'm I'm rolling that convex geometry back into the blade. And uh, then I'll move on to the green stone, and I'll clean the scratches up. I'll flip the burr a little bit. And then I strop, and I strop on a, a great big old bent strop. It's loaded with silicon carbide paste, 600 grit, and uh, go to cutting after that. You know, it's it's sharpening is not that difficult when your main objectives are develop a burn and then you remove that burn and it, in my opinion that is what sharpening is pulled down to you develop a burn and then you do everything you can to get rid of that burn yeah so is your your edge if it's uh only taken to about 600 on the strop is still probably a little toothy is it it's still pretty it's it's pretty toothy the, uh, the silicon carbide breaks down a little bit as you use it. Uh, it gives you a, a dirty mirror finish. So it's it's not like these mirrored edges people like to show, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a little bit dirty. Uh, I'd be curious what it looked like under a microscope, but I've been using the same strop compound for, oh, goodness, since before I started making knives. Uh, it's what I used to use to sharpen my carbon knives with, and uh, it, I just I love it. Uh, it cuts everything, but 
above that 10V. You know, S125V, it doesn't cut very well, so, you know, it's not going to cut the new M398 real well. It's not going to do Rex 121 very well, but pretty much everything in that A11 in class and down, it'll it'll do just fine. So what what made you decide to want to become a trainer in the, the blade sports? Did, did Donovan ask you to help do some more schools or? It's, it's kind of the natural progression of things. Uh, you know, not all guys are able to attend every competition. And uh, we had, you get instances where you might have six or eight people that need to get trained. And if you've only got one trainer, that's just, it's an agonizing day of training because you've got one person doing the training and then eight people that you have to give a chance to do everything. So if you can break those eight people into two or three groups, it makes everything quicker. It's smoother. You know, more questions are asked. Everybody learns more. Everybody gets more time to test and experience the cuts. So it's, it's kind of a natural progression. And, you know, I'd hope to at some point be able to do a school or competition here local in my area. But uh, it's not going to happen for the next six or eight months, I don't figure. And and all that stuff, even though it doesn't look like it's a lot of work, lots of times it is a lot of work to make it look like it's not a lot of work. Making sure everything's laid out yeah. and taped off. and Yeah, there's there's a lot of... You know, the cutting boxes, you've got foot fault boxes and stuff that you have to stay in. Then in the training, you have to have the rope taped off because you've got cut zones on the rope. You've got to have the dowels taped off because there's cut zones on the dowels. Uh, there's, there's a lot of prep that goes into a school, not to mention just to go into a competition because everything's got to be there and ready for a dozen or more cutters. In a competition, and you know that's that's a lot of wood to have. It's a lot of rope to have. It's a lot of golf balls and tennis balls and cardboard tubes and just water bottles. I mean, we we go through hundreds of water bottles in a good cut. Speaking of competition, um, do you need a sponsor to compete? Oh no, you don't need a sponsor. You don't even need a knife. Uh, I've got a knife that I carry that travels with me to every cut. The only reason that knife was made is for people to use. Uh, and I'm not the only one. I know Donovan's got knives that he carries around. Um, but as far as a sponsor, it helps. You don't need it. Uh, blade Sports, one of the drawbacks to Blade Sports is, A, if you want a knife and you're not a knife maker, are pretty expensive to get. And, B, um, if you don't live really close to majority of the cuts you've got to travel and flying is expensive driving is time consuming so it's there's a few drawbacks to it but when you when you really enjoy it you kind of make those sacrifices yeah so the the sponsors the sponsors make it easier but they're not a, a necessity no they're not a necessity uh, i mean we we pay for all our travel expenses for several years before i finally uh, approached even heat for being a sponsor for me and uh, you know it, it definitely makes it easier and are they your sponsor now yes how's it been working with them oh man they're they're great uh, you know i've had an even heat oven for years and years 
And when I approached them, you know, I, I, I put a lot of thought into who I wanted to ask to sponsor me because I didn't just want to ask any Tom, Dick, or Harry to sponsor me. I wanted to be somebody that I trusted, I believed in, I stood behind whatever they offered. And, uh, you know, I, I approached probably half a dozen different people before I come on to Even Heat. And, I mean, I was I was very appreciative when they said yes, and they seemed as excited to get me on as I was to have them join. So, very cool. yeah, I was happy. Sounds like a good combination. Yeah. Yeah. And then I know uh, we see a lot of videos of you and your wife training in the backyard. How often do you guys train? And I see you use a lot of different bottles and stuff. I imagine you ask friends and different people to, to hold on to different bottles and stuff for you to practice with? Honestly, no. We we go and buy the $3 case of 40 bottles from Sam's when we're going to cut a lot of water. Uh, but when we're when we're training like that, we'll mostly do like two or three bottles spaced out in the space of ten or fifteen bottles. So you have a bottle at the beginning and the end, and sometimes one in the middle. Because the the idea there is the once you get into cutting the bottles, especially full of water, cutting a full water bottle is gravy. I mean, so once you if you initialize the cut in the first bottle. And you come out the cut in the last bottle, you'll cut all the bottles in between it. Okay. Uh, only in circumstances like the water bottle record, which is 28 bottles, 29 bottles, and seven seven straight feet of bottles to cut. That's a situation where if you're going to practice, you're going to want a little bit more in between because there's a there's a pretty good momentum loss inside that seven feet of cut. But uh. Everybody always complains about wasting water and all this. I mean, you know, for real, the water's going to get drank anyway, and you're going to piss it out. <laughs> so it really, I really don't get behind that argument with most people. We recycle the plastic. But yeah, you know, we're cutting bottles, and we drink out of Yetis, or if we get Polar Pops from the gas station, I mean, I'll use the same Polar Pop cup for a week <laughs> sometimes. We might use a lot of water bottles, but I'm pretty conscious of my carbon footprint. Yeah, I know. I know a, a lot of people are getting mad that you can't reuse the cups at a lot of the the gas stations anymore either. So uh, you're confusing can't and not supposed to. Robin just said that Maryland has outlawed styrofoam. Well, I mean, think about that. Yeah, well, that contains dihydrogen monoxide, which is a highly lethal compound. I mean, if in your lungs, it can kill you. It's been found in, in every cancerous tumor. Um, huh. I mean, that is nasty, nasty stuff. I had no idea about that. <laughs> Dan. <laughs> dihydrogen monoxide's water. <laughs> Did he say dihydrogen monoxide? Yeah. yeah. You're a funny guy. <laughs> I thought you said something else. <laughs> well, I, I was just reading the memes page on Facebook the other day of that. Oh. Yeah. You got me. You got me. Uh, I should have been paying more attention. That's all right. Funny guy is slang for asshole. It's a, it's a synonym. So uh, I saw. I've seen you guys uh, challenge other cutting competition guys. Uh, I know David Moore. He did. We did a 
episode with him where we talked all about the ins and outs of Blade Sports in episode 15, but uh, I've seen you challenge the the Crothers and some other other people. What What's some of the, the hardest cutting challenges you've kind of done the Instagram challenge with other knife competition people? Uh, you know, the, the hardest one was probably the, uh, the slice, paper slice hanging in a paper clip. Uh, a vertical slice of a piece of printer paper hanging in a paper clip. That was uh, that was pretty tough. That one took uh, it took a little bit of effort, a lot of edge refinement. I mean, you, you got to get a you got to get a pretty keen edge for that cut. But uh, you know the stuff like the stuff like slicing a tomato or slicing the grapes laying on a laying on the table. Yeah, that stuff looks hard, uh, but it's, you know, I'm going to give the secret away. There's a technique to it. Uh, you, granted, you got to have a sharp knife, but, you know, it's not like you couldn't sharpen up the $5 Chicago cutlery and do it, too, honestly. Uh, technique has a lot to all of it. You get rebar sharp enough to cut anything once. Right. And that, that's like the... Uh, you know, the freestanding toilet paper tube. I mean, it's it's tough. Don't get me wrong. That one's tough, too. But again, once you have that edge that's sharp enough to grab that cardboard, uh, the rest of it's, you know, not that difficult. Uh, there's a little bit of technique to it, a little bit of controlling your speed coming in so that you don't push the tube off. You start your cut. Now, one that is really difficult is the the static water bottle, empty water bottle. Uh, you know, you take one of those cheap plastic empty water bottles, empty, and then just try and slice it freestanding. That's tough. I mean, that takes a it takes a really sharp knife. It takes a lot of technique. It's got no mass to resist you. That's it. It's fairly tough, but it's got no weight to, to resist. And that, that's what makes a, a full water bottle easy. I, I really hate to say that because so many people do it as a sharpness test. But, I mean, a full water bottle, in my opinion, is really as easy as cutting slices off a piece of paper. Well, it's holding it in your hand. It's kind of like my pet peeve about uh, printer paper. I mean, anybody can cut printer paper, use tissue paper or uh, phone book pages. Now, that's yep. you know, paper. a little more of an edge, in my opinion. Paper yeah. towel is actually pretty pretty difficult. Uh, yeah. Like the, the blue Scots paper towels are surprisingly difficult. Uh, you got to have your real sharp, keen edge. I didn't think about that. That's a good point because... Again, it doesn't have a lot of mass. It's very thin, but it's tough. There's not a lot of resistance to it. It likes to fold away from you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's, there's a lot of that stuff. Uh, I mean, I'm not a hair shaver anymore either. I mean, I'm like pop a hair or two here and there, but, you know, I've got all the hair on my arms. I've got most of the hair on my legs. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not. It's good. It's good to impress some, some potential customers if they're looking at stuff. Yeah, having the stubble coming back on my arms got to be an issue between Beth and I. <laughs> apparently, being embraced by sandpaper arms wasn't pleasant. 
You don't you don't have to shave all of the hair off your your arms, Dan. Look, when you're when you're sharp 14, 15 knives a week, you wind up kind of looking like a mangy Sasquatch. Yeah. Which is why I went to uh telephone book pages. I realized that if you can thinly if you can cleanly slice a telephone book page, you can shave. And cutting the paper, I actually can find imperfections in the edge that I won't yep. find shaving hair on my, my arm. Yep. Now, I, I do that with my competition knives, cutting newsprint or cutting telephone book paper. Now, Donovan does a really cool thing. I, I can't do it the way he does, but he'll actually fillet a piece of newsprint or phone book paper yep. with a competition knife. And I've... You know, again, it's technique, and I don't have that technique. I don't have that kind of finesse, uh, but it's pretty impressive to watch him do that. I've been playing around trying to do that, and I've also been playing around with um, shaving the ink off of the paper. Okay, yeah. One of the competition things that I saw you do was uh, where you had, like, two water bottles, one right side up and one upside down, and then you... You hit the bottom one, and it kind of shot the the one above up, and uh, that looked like it. That that's pretty challenging to try to hit it hard enough so it shoots the water up to uh, get the bottle and not get the bottle to to twist and move too. Yeah, that that one has a lot of difficulty to it, basically because you're at the mercy of what that bottle does in the air. You know, if it if it decides to turn horizontal to you when you're cutting and you just miss it, I mean, what do you do? But if it shoots straight up and, you know, you come back with that follow through, you know, it's, it's easy to hit. You, you also uh, have to accelerate your arm and stop and get it going fast enough to go the other direction it's, too. It's very difficult with a competition chopper. Uh, I've done it once or twice with a competition chopper. But uh, I've done it a lot more times with like a, a little lightweight bowie or something, you know, six or seven inch smaller knife. Um, just because of that, the change of direction of the mass is a lot easier with a smaller knife. Well, because there's less mass. Exactly. Exactly. Because I can't cut weight off my arm. So. <laughs> Which is why you, any individuals can move around, why us more successful individuals were, were not quite as nimble or as agile. Yeah. So, yeah. so back to sure. blade sports a little bit. Um, how do you feel like that's impacted your, your business overall? Do you feel like it's, uh, I, you obviously sell the competition choppers, so there's that part of it, but do you feel like that's helped get your, your name out to a lot broader audience to sell your other lines of knives and stuff too? Oh, blade sports has had a huge impact in my business. Uh, Ever, my turning point was a couple of years ago when I had that video go viral. The first one, that competition, you know, pretty much since then, I mean, I went from 2,000 followers on Facebook to over 30,000 in like a week. Wow. And it's, it's just, that was the turning point. I mean, I was truly blessed that the right person re, uh, regrammed that video and just because I went to bed one night and it had, you know, a couple thousand views and I woke up the next morning and it's got like 300,000. And I think it was, 
about 24 hours it took it to hit a million views on my Instagram. Wow. And then, you know, it just, it just snowballed from there. Uh, a couple of days later, people are awesome contacting me, wanted to license the video. They put it on, uh, their people are awesome. They put it on Fail Army. They put it on all their different platforms. And I mean, next thing I know, you know, it's got uh, three, four hundred million views at this point. And, uh, you know, it's been shared. And, you know, I still, a uh, couple of different guys in play sports tell me that somebody still sends that video to them at least once a week. <laughs> like, hey, have you seen this? And, I mean, it's, I think it's fascinating that two years later or three years later, it's still circulating around. Well, that's that's six lifetimes in internet time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, really. It was so funny when uh, when I was ca- getting ready to call you to to set up the the recording for the podcast. Literally, one of my one of my friends sent me like a compilation video that had like your knife run and one of David Moore's knife runs and stuff like put together in a video and it's like hey have you ever seen this i'm like yeah we this guy was on our podcast and i'm actually calling this guy tomorrow to set up a set up the date that was pretty cool it's amazing how that stuff all moves around so david moore when he was on the podcast he he gave away his uh his secret weapon for the the blade or the knife sports competition do you uh do you use his same uh secret of uh getting a big belly full of Fox Brothers barbecue before the, the blade show competition? Uh, no, before a competition, I'm a mess. I don't, I don't eat. I can't eat. I can't sleep. Uh, I just, I get myself all worked up. I, I, I'm my own worst enemy in that, in that moment. Okay. Along with the other blade sport stuff, uh, you were on a, the TV show knife or death. How does how did uh, what was that experience like, and how did how did the, how do you feel like that impacted your your business too? You know, honestly, I don't think that really impacted my business much at all. I mean, History Channel has a huge outreach, but uh, you know, the Knife for Death experience was it was awesome. I wouldn't trade. Only thing I would do different is a slightly longer knife blade going into it. And probably practice hitting some falling watermelons. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember seeing that in the the show. Yeah, who who knew hitting something the size of a basketball falling was so difficult? But it is. Yeah, especially yeah. if it's falling vertical and you're swinging horizontally. So, but you know, they told us specifically, don't swing upward at it. You know, it was, it was one of the rules. They said, if you swing upward, we're going to disqualify you. Oh. So I took that as to mean any upward swing rather than, you know, ang- angling upward from right to left. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's all an interpretation of the rules, I guess, at that point. But, uh, you know, it, it was fun. I had a great time. I think, uh, my knife performed amazingly well, uh, cutting-wise. I can't ask for much more than that. Uh, all I would have liked is about, I don't know, four more inches of blade. 
that, that would have that would have made a lot of stuff different. What man hasn't said that? Do what? <laughs> Dan being a three year old. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that as I was saying it. Look, <laughs> oh, you, you've never wished for four more inches. <laughs> Every day. Uh, so, uh, what was it like to to meet Goldberg? I remember watching him when I was young in the WWF and stuff. You know, it was really cool. It was, uh, I mean, he's, he's a big personality. Uh, but I was, I was honestly shocked that I expected him to be a lot bigger than he was. You know, I, I guess I was thinking of him from, I guess, 15 or 16 year old eyes. And uh, I was expecting him to be a lot bigger. When your name is Big Chris, t- people tend to not be quite as big as you expected. Yeah, you know, I, I do only have one friend that I have to actually look up to. At least six nine. But somebody referred to as average size Dan. I can tell you, <laughs> when your nickname is Big Chris, there's just not that many big people left in the world. Yeah. So, so as your business has grown, what are, what are, what's been some of the most surprising challenges that has kind of come up? Uh, you know, um, every day I'm surprised at how cheap some people think a custom knife is or how cheap they think that my labor is worth or my time is worth. It's, it's like, uh, yeah, I'll go out and I'll spend third. on a custom 1911, but what makes your $500 knife worth more than the $5 Walmart special? And I'm like, what makes your $3,500 pistol so much nicer than the $500 high uh, high point? I know high point don't cost $500, but uh, you know what I mean. It's it's just the same, same thing. You know, all the time, it's like, I want a knife, but I've got $200 to spend. I'm like, I'm not the maker to buy from then. I'm sorry. I don't have anything that's in the $200 range. And, you know, I just, I hate that mentality that I'm the customer. My time's worth more than your time that I Mm -hmm. seem to get. And I'm I'm sure every knife maker gets it. Some of it is people not appreciating what they're getting. And some of it is... I've had some people that I have, I've helped make knives and pretty much across. Well, here, I'll put it this way. A friend of mine down in Columbia occasionally brings on, he's a guide, but occasionally he'll make knives with people and they spent two or three days making a knife and he was finished. The, the client was finished with it. And, uh, my buddy said, so, uh, did you take $250 for that knife? And the guy said, hell no. I spent three days on this. And my buddy looked at him and smiled and said, remember that the next time you buy a knife. Yeah. Uh, I, I used to not value my shop time as much as I did. Uh, but uh, I made really good friends with the guy that used to have the table next to me at Blade Show. And Robin would talk to him a lot while I was busy, and he would we would talk whenever we we're busy. And he told me one time, he said, "I won't touch a knife for less than a hundred dollars an hour. That's my shop time. If I'm working on a knife, 
and it takes me 10 hours to do it. It's $1,000 of labor plus whatever materials go into it. And, you know, I, those words really struck true to me more than I thought they would. And I started valuing my time a lot more after that. That's the difference between a, a hobby maker and a, a professional maker sometimes. Hmm. Is the, the valuing the, the time you put into it. It's always so hard when you first start out, too, because the like everything's just so expensive. You, uh, you want to get the, the best belt you can. Those are like we talked earlier, 10, 10 or more dollars a belt. Right. You you got to get four or five of those. You're 40, 50 bucks. And it's just it, everything adds up so quickly that you get you get overwhelmed. So you try to push everything to the, the limit. But um, swapping out to a new belt, just it's amazing. Like I, I still amaze myself. Like I push my belts a little farther than I should. And I'm like, just, just swap this one out. And then you just do one pass with a, a brand new grip belt. And it just like cleans the whole thing up beautifully. And right. Like, man, I should have done that five minutes ago. Right. Yeah. You, you mess up more knives trying to get more life out of a belt than just switching to a new belt. We've talked a lot about the making side of it, but um, you know, if, as I'm sure you've experienced, if you're running a business, um, how do you keep the the front of the house organized? You know, the it, I guess that's a culinary term, but the you know the back of the house is the production. Okay. We talk a lot about the production, but how do you keep the business side of your company organized and and know what's going on. Um, the I have to be the world's worst at answering emails uh, or messages. Sometimes, sometimes I'll go three, four weeks without answering emails and just let them pile up, and then cuss and throw a fit, spending three or four hours doing all the emails. So I'm trying to do better at that. But the thing that seems to help me the most here lately is instead of making notes about knives and trying to keep track of stuff, is actually pulling a knife blade that's ready, writing the person's name on it, writing the hand of material on it, writing where I have their correspondence, whether it's Instagram or Gmail, and just writing that information directly on that knife. And that has, that has kept me so much more organized than I ever would have thought it does. And it it's helped me keep from over-promising and under-delivering because that way I'm not promising somebody a knife that I don't have and I'm not under time constraints to try and pump it out really quick. Um, do it all in-house. So that, that's, that's the biggest thing for me. Part of the front of house, I would kind of say, is goes along with my drive to work. And the thing that keeps me interested in making knives is doing something for me. You know, if it's a, if it's a new pattern, new handle material, just something. I try and every weekend, you know, Saturday and Sunday is my time to make whatever I want to make. And that is, that really helps keep the, the tenacity, the drive of, 
make it. Because uh, I know I'm not going to keep that knife that I make over that weekend. Uh, and most of my customers know if they're interested in it, they just wait a few weeks. I'll put it up for sale because I'm going to be doing another project that I want in the, those few weeks. But that's what keeps me being me. It keeps me going on and doing different things. Awesome. That's a that's a good idea. You probably might be good for you, Dano. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, that last 2% is what kills me. Yeah. The, the, the finish and the blade is the easy part. The, the, the doing the paperwork and shipping it out is the hard part for me. Well, it's never the, never the fun part either. This is true. Yeah. I definitely make it as the fun part. I feel like on the shipping standpoint, I feel like I would do a lot better if I just picked one day a week and said, every knife ships on this day. Rather than on the day somebody buys a knife, I try and hustle and get it boxed up and shipped out. I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to think about that one, but I've always thought that dedicating the day to shipping would be a better use of time than randomly shipping one or two here and there. I'm bad about, I'll just finish this batch of knives before I ship out. Because mm-hmm. shipping out, I'm not working. Right. You know, it, I'm going to fit it. And, but the rest of that story is if you don't ship it, you don't get paid. If you want to pay rent, <laughs> doesn't matter if you finish that other batch of knives, if you haven't gotten paid for any knives. Right. Yeah. So where do you see, where do you see the industry going? The, the knife industry? What, what do you think the next big thing is going to be? Man, that's, that's so hard to say. I used to say, I used to think that mid-techs, everybody was going to go to mid-techs. But, I mean, it's like we talked about earlier. If if you go to mid-techs, where's the artistry at? It's like they've got shows on TV about glass blowing. Why can't we, why can't we have more shows about knife making? You know, the, the, the artistry of it. You know, there's got to be a Bob Ross of knife making out there somewhere, and we just we just haven't come across him yet. Well, it, it's hard to have that calm, relaxing tone when you're wearing a respirator. Yeah. Like, yeah, a happy, a, a happy little mistake sounds very different than. <laughs> yeah, and usually those happy mistakes happen at 120 miles an hour, and it's more than a happy. Little mistake. This is true. <laughs> little mistake, when little mistakes take half your fingertip off, you don't call them half. Right. Uh, you know, I don't. I when I'm in a phase right now of not using natural materials, which bone and antler make me sick. I've never been so sick in my life as the one time I tried to put deer antler on a knife handle. I absolutely charge out the butt to do bone horn or antler yeah. because my shop smells like burnt hair for three days. And if I've got to smell that for three days, you're going to pay. So I've, I've really, I've really gotten away from natural materials, but uh, one of my favorite woods that I ever worked with, I mean, I love desert ironwood. I think it's awesome, but uh, bog oak, bog oak. There's just something about working 
with something that's 5,000 years old. Uh, I just came across a pretty healthy supply of bog oak. So I've been looking at doing some knives with wood handles again because, man, that bog oak is just awesome. To your point, I love, for similar reasons, I love working with material. In that short version, used to be a woodworker. I love being able to work with something that old that's wood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said I like to work with old wood. Go ahead. Chuckle up. I hear you snickering. Just just you snickering. <laughs> so, uh, do you have anything? That's uh, the end of our questions. Do you have anything else you want to let the listeners know about, Chris? Or any any new things coming out? New things? I don't know. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm working on setting up a forge. I've got a couple of new anvils. Well, they're not new. They're new to me. And, you know, most most knife makers, when they start forging, start with like a 100-pound anvil. Well, you know, Big Chris being Big Chris. Both of mine are, one of them's 380 pounds and the other one's 330 pounds. So I, I went a little bit overboard with those. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to starting forging. Um, I'm looking forward to messing with this bog oak, uh, which, which, you know, is really nice. Uh, what else going on? Man, I really don't know anything else. I'm just trying to plug away. Okay. Get my kid to learn his numbers and letters and make a few knives when I can. That's kind of the, that's kind of the big goal around here. Get through school and get a few knives made if we can. Those are some super, super solid goals. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You want to give let the listeners yeah. know how they can get in touch with you, uh, follow you on social media, and get in touch with you if they want to buy a knife? Yeah. Um, Big Chris Custom Knives on Facebook. Big Chris Custom Knives with underscores on Instagram. Uh, you know, and emails. Email is the best way to get in touch with me, bitchriscustomize at gmail.com. You can find that on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I'll answer Instagram messages pretty quick. I despise Facebook Messenger with all my holy being. So I don't answer Facebook messages. But, yeah, that's email is the best way to get in touch. And, you know, we can talk about what you're interested in. What you might want to buy, put in an order. So right now I'm looking about eight months to a year out on deliveries. Cool. Well, we and we definitely enjoyed talking with you. You guys can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Knife Perspective. And you can find the podcast uh, on all sorts of different areas, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and iHeartRadio. Uh, you can keep in touch with Dan uh, Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com, uh, Dogwood Custom Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And if you don't want to bother him, uh, send him an email, dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com. And you can keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives. And you can find me, Cage Daily Knives, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And Kyle at Cage Daily Knives or Kyle at knifeperspective.com is uh email addresses to get in touch with me and if you want to help support the podcast um check out the website we have uh stickers you can help 
help donate a little bit to the podcast. And there's also a donation button if you want to help out with the podcast in that way, too. I forgot to put those on there for the last uh, couple shows. But, yeah, there's that on the website if you want to help support the podcast some and stick some stickers all over the place. You know, and uh, feel free to leave a comment with iTunes to let everyone know how this show changed your life. Maybe it got you off crack. Maybe it returned meaning to your life. Whatever little thing this show did for you, please let the world know. It, it will help us, and in the end, it'll help you. Yeah, everybody, uh, in, uh, any help getting the word out about the podcast, we greatly appreciate it. Try to do our best to uh, bring you some, some great content and want to try to get it out to as many people as we can. So appreciate all of you that have been uh, reposting some of the stuff in your stories and helping tell people word of mouth uh, about the podcast. So thank you. All right. That's it. Say good night, Kyle. All right. Good night, Kyle. Well, let's take it to the edge. Cause that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're going to talk about our things now. That's what's expected. It's the night prospective. You know, and uh, feel free to leave a comment. You know, let, um, damn it, blank uh, <laughs> on. This is so totally going into the uh, the blooper reel. Um, iTunes, that's the one. But let's start with iTunes. Feel free.